millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. is such a beautiful <laughs> dramatic dramatic valley. landscape yeah. yeah so this is this is this is where a lot of people in central don't get to see because there's not that many walking trails which should take you up into this kind of landscape uh, and this is pretty particularly scenic with the snow snow-capped mountains in behind but this is where I'd like people to sort of really envisage standing well you wouldn't be able to see it because you'd be in Totoro forest but you know skiing off these these faces into Totoro forest is pretty spectacular so trying to all get people to to really use their imaginations and and think of totoro clad hillsides with kakapo running around and tui and bellbird flying above and all that sort of biodiversity going on It'd be a pretty spectacular place kyora and welcome to our changing world cool clerk and canon dna standing on a rocky ledge in the dunston ranges overlooking the wai kerikeri valley University of Otago PhD student Ben Teal has a vision for the future of this central Otago landscape. But it requires a lot of imagination. Central Otago is famous for its dry, grassy, tussocked landscape, speckled with low-lying prickly shrubs. But Ben tells me it was not always like this. The challenge is to have people's imagination think of all the tussock and shrubland that they see in Central is all an artifact of fire. And if we go back a thousand years, you have to basically take all of that out and replace it with Totra. And it's that's a really hard conceptual thing for people to do. For his PhD fieldwork, Penn has been hiking the different hills of Central Otago, looking for leftover pockets of thin bark Totra trees that survived the fires that swept across the land post-human arrival. Ben's PhD research is funded by the Ministry for Primary Industries One Billion Trees program, Te Urulakao, which plans to have one billion trees planted by 2028. But not just any tree anywhere. The program is funding research to ensure it is planting the right tree in the right place with the right conditions for the right purpose. And this is where work like Ben's comes in. Alongside colleagues who are working on other native plants like beech and manuka, Ben is part of Na Kakano Fakaho, the Seeds Project, investigating the optimum conditions for native seedlings to grow. And so today we are on a treasure hunt, looking for the living remnant populations of Totara and the descendants of those trees that survived and held on. Plan today is to walk up the hill almost to the bush line, which is about 900 meters above sea level, and we are going to be finding uh, Totara, uh, along with a few other plants up there. When Ben said, walk up the hill, he meant up. I mean, we start at a gentle incline, but I can see steeper sections ahead. As we walk, I ask him about the different species of Totara and where they can be found. Lowland Totara, so 
Podocarpus totara. Much prefers it down on the, near the coast, but someone could go from Northland to Southland and find totara where it's left. The species we're looking at is called Podocarpus latus. This is a thin bark totara. It's basically a totara that's moved up into the hills or into the shade in some places in New Zealand. Again, it's found all over the country, but there's a particular stronghold where it's left in what I call dryland South Island, so everything east of the Alps. And this species actually hybridizes with lowland totara, so it's a bit of a pain sometimes when you find them together. But basically the one that we're looking at is a well adapted to the dry, the cold. Doesn't get as big as lowland totara, but just looks just like a totara. And then above the bush line, we have snow totara, Podocarpus nivalis. And that's basically another form post-glaciation that's quite happy growing up in the snow line. Again, looks like totara, just grows as a bush, not a tree. The remnant trees we are looking for won't be on these initial gentle slopes because, as Ben tells me, fire would have ripped through them after human arrival. We are looking for gnarly, rocky outcrops that would have sheltered the plants from the worst of the fire. And to do that, we have to climb. Refuge sites are normally around rocky tours and steep rocky faces like this, where plants can actually hold on. It's a grassy track that we are following, and as it climbs, it gently switches back. Now, it's looking all very samey in terms of plants. Lots of grass and the new lambs are munching on. And then in some of the more sheltered gullies, there are prickly bushes like the native matagori and porcupine shrub and the introduced briar. But at one stage, we round one of the switchbacks and see a rocky outcrop. And we can see that there's just a little bit more going on. So we have a little residual pocket of kofi, which you find scattered across central Otago. And these ones have just finished, well, just about finished flowering, which is about right for down here. Uh, kofi is pretty fantastic in that the seed is very hard. And it, it's what we call seed banks, where it will hold the seed on the tree, but it will also hold the seed in the soil. And so what happens is when fire comes through, even if it takes the tree out, a lot of that seed can germinate from where the kofi tree was. So I think in part that's the reason why we still have kofi in central, is that it has a little bit of fire resistance compared to other trees in that hard seed. But this is a pretty classic example of a little rocky outcrop where species diversity is just a little bit more than on the surrounding flats. And again, this comes back to the protection from fire. The rock Protection is... from fire. Rock, rock helps just slow that fire spread down and uh, give a little bit of shelter to those plants. So we're looking at a little bit more biodiversity here. Just a little bit smidgen more. Yeah, there's a few other plants in there which I'm trying to figure out from a distance. But you can see that just the, the texture of the plants changes a little bit on this rocky outcrop. Mm-hmm. There'll be a few other herbs and things holding on in those rock crevices which have once fed moa when they were wandering around. Moa particularly like their low-growing herbs. Uh, but this is a sort of a classic example where there's just that extra bit of biodiversity on these rock outcrops. Uh, which is, again, not a, a fantastic habitat for the plants themselves. It's stony and soil's poor and doesn't hold a lot of moisture. But if it keeps them out of the fire, then they'll hold on for that extra bit. As we look across the landscape from this little collection of plants to the hills and flats beyond, Ben makes me exercise my imagination. If we go back a thousand years, so this is just before Polynesians arrived, we would be standing in Totoro Forest, all the way down to the flats of classic central Otago. So all the mountain ranges from the Rock and Pillars uh, west of Dunedin to 
Queenstown would have been cloaked in totara forest. As you get further west, so over towards Cadrona and Queenstown, uh, Mountain Beach and Silver Beach would have dominated. But in the drier parts of central Otago, they just beach couldn't hold on. And it was just too dry, basically. Uh, the flats are a little bit more unclear because we've lost pretty much all the remnant vegetation and, and even the charcoal and the pollen samples. This time, it looks like it probably would have been coated in Illyria, so tree daisies. They're basically a small-leafed, silvery tree. grows up to, well, different species, but 5 to 10 meters. Um, they're a lovely tree. They, they have a, a fragrant blossom in the spring. And one of these really well adapted to growing in the very dry, flat, semi-arid uh, central Otago basins. Ben has mentioned pollen and charcoal there. These are just some of the pieces of evidence that different people have used to look back in time and piece together the landscape that used to be before it's believed both human-set fires and changes to climate had an impact on this vegetation. But there are also some real obvious in-your-face clues that Ben keeps an eye out for. So we have a thousand-year-old logs still on the ground because Totoro is remarkably durable as a tree. We know that those are straight-limbed logs, much like a forestry pine plantation today, which means they were all growing in a close-packed, you know, densely forest. They weren't growing out by themselves. Because if you have a tree growing out by itself in any garden or out on a, on a flat bit, they'll have lots of branches coming off because it's looking for the light. But when you have a tree growing amongst other trees, their challenge is to go up as fast as possible. So they, they generally don't have that branching structure to them. So the logs that we've got left tell us that this was closed forest. It wasn't, you know, scattered totoro trees across the landscape. Uh, and so the other challenge, the other hunt, is to find some more of those remnant totoro logs to, you know, check them and get some dates off them. But in part, the early farmers used them because they were great fence posts. So often the easiest place to find totoro logs is to check a farmer's fence. Now, we're not just wandering up the hill today and hoping to come across some trees. Ben knows exactly where we're going because the Totara have been previously noted by enthusiastic botanists who've been hiking the region. Hints are my fantastic source of, of populations. Uh, it's very hard to cover that region of Otago on foot. Uh, and as I said, I don't have a private helicopter yet. So people telling me about the Totara they've seen on their hikes or skis or flying over and some helicopter pilots have been really fantastic because they've been flying over and they've spotted Totara from the air and said, oh, you know about that? And I thought, nope. And so I've gone and checked it out and definitely has been Totara. So um, I think I've added a, you know, holistically added maybe a dozen or two dozen Totara populations since I started this last year, which haven't really been properly recorded before. So it's a lot more out there than, than people expect. Um, still not Still not huge amounts, but Definitely enough to, to give us an idea about it. it was once covering all of central Otago. And in terms of the field work, like you've mentioned a couple of different mountain ranges. <laughs> yes. What is the extent of your field work? So if area? I had to draw a line around it, it goes stretches from Glenorchy in the west hmm? to the rock and pillars in the east. So it pretty much covers Wow. Good chunk of central Otago. Well, Otago. Lakes lakes in central Otago. I mean, the challenge there is it sounds like a big area, but the number of Totoro populations left is not that many. So it's not like I'm, you know, canvassing the entire mountain ranges in between. It's really three or four populations on each one, or maybe maybe on the Dunstans up to ten. Uh, so it's really distances in between, but the actual overall space in which Totoro is left would fit, you know, into one valley without any difficulty. So... Big, big search area, but you need it when there's such fragmented remains of it. Uh, and I really want to see how well this Totoro can handle, sort of, if it gets given a little bit of help. 
spreading it out a little more into Central. And so that's part of the, the quest is to figure out the factors that might help or inhibit its regeneration or even just planting. And things like that will come down to fungal communities and the genetic strength of the stalk and propagation methods and soil conditions and everything in between. We're still climbing, but reach the end of the wide track and round a corner where we have an amazing view of the valley, with the snowy peaks above, the steep slopes on the other side, and the ridgeline ahead, with our destination in view. So having just climbed most of the mountain, uh, we're looking out to onto the Dunson Ranges, snow-cud, and just pointing out that the Totara we're after is probably about a kilometre away, but there's a little rocky outcrop where you can sort of see the perfect Totor refuge spot in the Dunstans, which we will head over to. And in fact, there's a few other suspect things I'm looking at in the distance, which we'll check out to see what see what might be what there. What they might be. Yeah. And the snow, do you know what altitude that's at? That's about, the, the snow line at the moment is about 900 to 1,000 metres, so it's it's effectively marking the bush line for us. And part of the reason that the Totor might have survived in the Dunstans is that that snow line was probably just enough to add that moisture, you know, with a fire that the fire couldn't quite burn as fiercely as it could lower down. So that's probably why we have that artifact of Totara in the sort of just on the edge of the tree line, snow line. But this is pretty classic uh, upper Dunstan territory with, you know, ridge lines and valleys and steep-sided mountains and uh, bits of remnant vegetation to go hunting. So we're coming up to a classic rocky tour on a ridgeline, which screams, you know, places where fire can't... Shelter from fire. Shelter yeah. from fire. Oh, and now we can, can see really, the... Yeah. Now we can see the Totara you can on really the ridgeline to our right, just below the snow line. And you can see it's spreading. It looks like it's spreading both up and down the hill, which is nice to see. It'll be interesting in time if we see that Totara jumping a couple of the ridgelines and starting to spread through some of the shrubland adjacent, but that's going to require bellbirds or humans to accentuate that. So that little group of Totara then, how long has that taken to grow? So the mature ones, you can see there's actually quite a a difference in height. So there's some that yeah. are what we call relatively mature up here down to quite young ones. And my guess is those mature ones could be hundreds of years old. So the remnant population was probably limited to just those rocks. And since fire has been lessened, the juveniles have started to spread out into the more, but once was susceptible areas. So if you map the ages, the oldest ones would probably be on the tops of the rocks and the youngest ones would be down below in the less rocky spots. It's just not really that much of a population spread for hundreds of years. Yes, and that comes down to if you only had a small number of trees left, and we're talking a handful, it's just not, you know, it's just not enough. Imagine how long that would take for that seed to spread out and grow and then mature, etc. So it does seem like you need a critical mass of trees to really get things started on scale. And that's why a few, a few valleys over where there's 10,000 Totara, things are really going at scale because there's enough of a population. 
And I guess this is where your work comes into it then. Yeah, this is where I'd like to figure out if there are ways we can expedite that growth and encourage the totara to really start to take off. So we've just climbed up onto this kind of rocky outcrop near the top of the ledge and we found our treasure. We have, we found a, a total population at about 900 meters above sea level. So just, just below the bush line of a thousand meters. Uh, and the totara is growing almost out of rock. Uh, there's a few, few around here, there's a few up above us as well. And uh, it's, it's probably as tough a situation and habitat as you could put a tree in. And It does look like it's growing out of the rock. Yeah, so uh, the rock in, in part will help keep it warm in the winter when the sun, sun heats the rock up, so it'll help moderate the, the freezing level to some extent. But uh, thinbark totara does have a very, very low freezing point, so it can really handle snowy conditions uh, and also the... 30 plus degrees of the central Togo summers. So it's a pretty resilient, adaptive tree. I gotta say, I, like, I know this was its original home, but now it <laughs> looks out of place. Yeah, it does. Compared it, to all of the prickly shrubs. Yes, that which, is, which is, I think, uh, the part of the, the challenge is to have people's imagination think of all the tussock and shrubland that they see in central is all an artifact of fire. And if we go back a thousand years, you have to basically take all of that out and replace it with Totara. And it's that's a really hard conceptual thing for people to do. Mm. Uh, especially as you say, Claire, it, it looks out of place to you, which understandably so, when there's so little left, it's not in people's sort of ingrained landscape or imagination. If I said, imagine what Central Tago looks like to you, it's just not in there. Tell us a little bit about Totara. So Totara sits in uh, quite an old uh, lineage of conifers, which sort of evolved before the, did, they did evolve before the flowering plants, but the way that it pollinates and distributes seed is, is sort of a, a weird hybrid where most conifers are wind-dispersed in terms of their pollen and pollination, and then their seed is wind-dispersed. But Podocarpus has decided to sort of hedge its bets a little bit and is wind-pollinated, but uses its uh, birds for its seed dispersal mechanism. So it's kind of jumped, partly jumped the shark onto the flowering side of plants and how it, how it spreads its seed out. It, it doesn't compete with the, the flowering angiosperm trees in terms of speed, but it will be here for a thousand years. So it's, it's the turtle or the tortoise in that classic uh, turtle and the rabbit or turtle and the hare race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it might not look like it's going to win the race, but if you give it a thousand years, it'll still be here while everything else has sort of come and gone. So what's the plan now? Now that we've we've sighted the totara. <laughs> so now we've done all the hard work. Um, I will have a, a recce around and see how many trees we might have in this little population. Mm -hmm. I'll see what the uh, male and female ratios might be, um, see if there's any seed coming along for this season or next, because the nice thing about totara is that it takes two years to develop its seed into something that's viable. So I'll be able to tell sort of what's happening into next season. And then uh, see if we're having any sort of regeneration around seedlings. Anecdotally looking like this, it looks like there's very little regeneration happening. Um, so that might be that the population is just too small here to really produce a reasonable amount of viable seed. It also looks like we might have some hybridization going on here with um, snow totara, which is not uncommon near the bush line where the, the genes get all mixed up. Uh, so yeah, just a bit of a recce around. Where we are is pretty gnarly. Let me just be clear, in no definition would you call this a forest. 
It is a tiny clump of squat, bushy totara that look like they're clinging on for dear life on the side of a steep, rocky slope littered with scree. On top of that, the possum poo we find and the goats we hear in the distance tell us that the lack of soil, altitude and tough climate aren't the only things these trees are battling. But you can see the possum, the possum poo. Oh, yeah. So Totara, unfortunately, whilst it might not be particularly palatable to most of our introduced uh, mammals, possums do quite like browsing on it. And so one of the issues we have is that a lot of the uh, Totara seems to be uh, suffering from a bit of dieback from possum browse. So possums quite happily up in the snow line. I think a lot of people think possums are sort of a lowland pest, but possums will quite happily wander around in the tussocks. Uh, and so... Unfortunately, you know, controlling possums is one of the best things we can do to, to help, you know, keep these trees healthy. And where I've been, where landowners are really controlling possums is the totara is coming back quite nicely. We know that from other parts of the country as well. So possum browse and possum control is a big, a big plus. It's just very difficult country to, yes. to control possums in. So, <laughs> but it's that on the other, added to the list of challenges. But possum, you always find evidence of possum browse when you're in these populations, which is unfortunate because the trees are probably not not happy for it um well so. they have a tough enough life already tough enough life to then have something eating on you on mm. regular basis but for possums it's probably one of the few things they can actually eat up here um so they'll probably be naturally drawn to it because we're effectively standing in a scree field ben starts to inspect the trees looking to see whether the tree is male with small cones or female with little berries The first few all turn out to be male, but we can see some small seedlings pushing their way through the scree, so there must be a female somewhere. See if we can find some thing. They can be quite cryptic. Ah, this is a female. Oh, we we finally have a female. Found her, she might be the only one. So, just pulled off a little bit, and I've managed to so I'm just showing oh, that see. there's a little immature uh, female, little green, little green. It's kind of hard to spot at that stage. Yeah, isn't so it? it's it's very cryptic at this stage. What will happen in time is that this will, when this ripens, this will turn red, and the uh, bellbird will come along and see that red flash in the tree and go, "I will eat that." Uh, and the seed is on the end of the the red attractant, and so that will get dispersed by the bird. But yeah, so we have a female. She's probably about two meters tall, um, sitting in between a couple of big rocks. And uh, below us, we have a sort of a field of a field of totara. This looks more like a, a Nivalis cluster, a uh, snow totara cluster. Ben snips a few cuttings of the female tree to grow. He won't come back here to collect seeds, he says, because there just isn't a big enough clump for good diversity. But that is what he's been doing at other sites. Finding these Totara remnant populations, mapping and health checking them, and then collecting cuttings and seeds to get a good representation of the central Otago remnant Totara gene pool. Cuttings is a, is a great way to grow Totara because it does strike relatively readily. The only issue with cuttings is that you are taking the same genetic stock. So you don't want to take one tree and 50 cuttings because you can have 50 identical individuals, which mm. means that if disease or stresses in the environment come along, that tree is going to be particularly poorly adapted. Uh, you want good genetic diversity, good, good, good mixture. But if we can get enough uh, propagating material from a range of populations, we'll be able to sort of mix all that gene pool up. So you have some 
cuttings that you've taken growing up somewhere? Yeah, so I've, I've taken cuttings from uh, the Pisas and the Dunstans, uh, and the plan is to take some cuttings from some of the other remnant populations over the summer. Uh, and those will, will grow those up, and then some of them will grow on uh, and plant sort of back into the environment where they came, and some of them will be used as field trials to see if we mix the genes up, uh, how well they're going to adapt, and can we, can we pull them down the hill uh, maybe and make them you know, grow further down where they once were. What Ben really wants to find out is whether there's a set number of totara seedlings and conditions for these seedlings that can help them act as a seed island, a group of trees that can be planted out together and then serve as a little starter pack for totara forest to grow and spread from. Then, if landowners and stakeholders and people around central Otago are on board, they could start to plant these seed islands further down the slopes, in the gentler conditions, which are more suitable, where the trees used to be before they were pushed to these rock-sheltered edges. It's a long-term project, with many obstacles to overcome first. But Ben likes to imagine this future central Otago with returning Totara Faras. The idea is seed islands would be great if we could sort of put one over there and one over there and one over there and in time they'll just spread out. But long-term plans, especially for forest. Interesting to think about. You might capture these seeds and start these seed islands, but then you're talking about a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is grandchildren, grandchildren's type stuff. But, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not, not that long, especially if... We can make them work with relatively little cost uh, and you effectively in time can just walk away and let, let nature do its thing. Um, this landscape wants to go back to wood, woody vegetation, whether that's an exotic or a native is the big question. And one of the major issues we have down here is exotic wilding conifers, which are adapted to northern hemisphere conditions and in places where there is seed source around, they're spreading invasively across pretty much every landscape. And wouldn't it be fantastic to actually have a native wilding conifer that wasn't quite as invasive, but was spreading around and, and filling all these niches in and in time could potentially be, you know, a timber source and things like that, which people are talking about. So it's sort of flipping the whole equation on its head instead of having these wildly exotic weeds, we actually have the natives doing sort of a similar thing. Um, but we need those, we need the trees back, basically. It's, do you think it's a barrier that humans aren't very good at thinking about long time yes. scales. I mean, that's always the classic thing is that if you're, you know, historian or archaeologist or botanist, you generally time frames stretch out to hundreds to thousands of years. Uh, whereas I understand for most people, it's it's weeks or months. Uh, and you know, it's this whole adage about you don't plant a tree for yourself; you plant it for your children or your grandchildren or other people's children. And I think you know, getting that that notion around where. It might take us hundreds of years, but if we start now, then in hundreds of years, people won't look back and go, why didn't they start that hundred years ago? Uh, And, you know, there was lots of discussion about that 120, 30, 40 years ago in New Zealand. Once the bush was being burnt for farming and things like that, people were saying, well, we could actually plant some stuff back now and it'll be ready for our grandchildren's grandchildren. And had they done that, we would be looking at that forest now. So, yeah, time frames are a funny thing, but you definitely don't plant a tree for yourself. Plant it for other people. Big thanks to Ben Teal, PhD student at the Department of Botany in the University of Otago, for letting me tag along and answering my many questions while walking up a hill. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Liz Garten for editing help. 
Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Tim Walken is executive producer. It is your last chance to vote for Our Changing Worlds for the listener's choice at the New Zealand Podcast Awards. You can do this by visiting nzpodcastawards.com, clicking the big blue button and typing Our Changing Worlds. It's that easy. If you follow the podcast already, thank you. If you don't, I recommend that you do. You can do this for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And it means that new weekly episodes will download to your device and you won't miss a single one. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. I'll post some photos of the remnant tote that we found there. And you'll also be able to listen to our extensive back catalogue of episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Come say hi. Great new RNZ podcasts are being launched all the time. Click on the podcasts and series tab on the website to explore them all. In the newest release, Let's Be Transparent, Joseph Stockhausen talks to people about navigating the ups and downs of gender transition. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.